Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, what we're going to discuss today may be one of the most misunderstood and challenging issues in American healthcare delivery, with a significant potential for lowering cost of care while improving outcomes and experience. As many of you know, employers pay for literally half of all the healthcare in our country, and they contribute to something like 75% of all the healthcare margin. They do make up, employers in our country make up the largest payer of healthcare delivery, even more than the federal and state governments, which make up around 35, 40% of all healthcare spend. And with the costs of healthcare escalating for decades and continuing to do so, this has imposed and continues to impose a major strain on corporate America. This pain has been captured and distilled by the infamous quote from Warren Buffett, the legendary business leader and investor, about four or five years ago, in which he stated that healthcare was the hungry parasite of corporate America. Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, has looked at healthcare margins and remarked that your margin is our opportunity, making it clear that corporate America sees healthcare margins as an opportunity for corporate savings as well as corporate revenue. That is by getting into the healthcare delivery game. Now, in my book on reframing healthcare, I refer to corporate America as the sleeping giant of the healthcare industry. They have been dozing for decades, but now they're awakening and they're hangry. They're hangry, angry at the costs of care and hungry to shave and share in some of that revenue. And as we know, corporate America has been very focused on this issue, looking for alternatives from Apple and Amazon launching their own primary care and virtual care for their employees. And you have to believe they're going to start offering this as a product or service to other employers, to Walmart providing specialty and surgical referral centers of excellence, as well as their own primary care to their own employees, to companies such as Comcast and dozens and dozens of others who have curated and partnered with healthcare vendors and put into place very sophisticated healthcare alternatives for their own employees. But at the same time, we know that the situation is complicated and not easy to solve, as evidenced by the recently failed attempt of Haven, an employer-based healthcare initiative launched by J.P. Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, and Amazon. It's also an extremely complicated and complex ecosystem involving employer-based HR and health benefits managers, benefit brokers, benefit consulting companies, healthcare insurance companies, provider groups, hospital systems, direct-to-employer providers, and collaborative entities such as the Business Group on Health and so many others. And with all of that in mind, I'm so, so excited to have our guest this week, who is a long-standing passionate expert in this domain and who has a discerning handle on the ecosystem, the fundamental problems in employer-based healthcare, as well as proven solutions. And he's going to share some of those real-life examples with us as well. But before I introduce our guest, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to this podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. So very, very specifically, here's what you can do. As soon as you're done listening to the podcast or the next time you see one of our social media graphics on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'd like you to share it with three colleagues or just blast it out on your listserv, your LinkedIn account, et cetera. I've heard back from a few of you over the past month who have done this, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking a moment to help spread the podcast 
and spread the word on creating a new healthcare. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest today. Again, so excited. Dave Chase describes himself on LinkedIn as the Johnny Appleseed of what's working in healthcare, health plans delivering world-class healthcare at 50% of the cost. Uh, Chase founded and leads Health Rosetta, Health Rosetta, whose goal is to empower community-owned health plans. Health Rosetta has created a blueprint and platform that empowers health plans to deliver high-quality, trustworthy, local, affordable care. Another purpose they have is to free up healthcare providers so that they can do what they've always been called to do, which is to serve their patients. Uh, Dave Chase has authored a number of insightful books, including The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream. I would urge you, look them up on Amazon.com. Uh, his books are, are really insightful. He also has extensive national television and film experience, as well as national speaking and consulting experience. Dave received the Health Value Awards Lifetime Achievement for Health Benefits Innovation at the 2020 World Healthcare Congress. Prior to this work, Dave Chase co-founded Avado, which was acquired by and integrated into WebMD Medscape. He also founded Microsoft's $2 billion 28,000 partner healthcare ecosystem. Dave clearly knows what he's talking about, has tremendous experience in the domain of healthcare, health tech, and now employer-based healthcare. Dave, I can't tell you how excited I am. It's been so long. The last time we spoke was a podcast, as you pointed out, almost two years ago, February 23rd, 2018. Uh, I can't believe it's so long. How are you doing today? Doing great. Really looking forward to the chat and appreciate the, the kind introduction. It's accurate and probably not enough, but let's jump in, Dave. So you've described the employer healthcare market as, in quote, one of the original sins of our dysfunctional healthcare system, and yet also a potential source of redemption. So bottom line it for us, Dave, what's fundamentally wrong uh, with the employer-based healthcare system? Uh, how did it get that way, and how is it working today? Yeah, I'd start with the end result that's so wrong, and that is that uh, the data is very clear that for the working and middle class in America, they are in economic depression that is over two decades long, because one definition of an economic depression is two or more years of wage stagnation or decline. And by that measure, and the data is really clear. It's not that companies are, are spending less. It's just every dollar and then some has uh, created this economic depression. This is more than twice as long as the Great Depression. It's longer even than 1930s Germany. And so you're going to have major issues when you have that kind of pain and dysfunction. And so part of that is that uh, in terms of getting into some of the specifics is people are very disconnected from what is being paid and the value they received. And there's so many fingers in the pie. I often say healthcare is not expensive. What's expensive is profiteering, price gouging, administrative bloat, outright fraud, inappropriate treatment. You know, after all, the clinicians are only taking home 27 cents of every dollar ostensibly spent on healthcare. And there's no question, they're the primary value creators. Doctors, just for reference, are about eight cents of that 27 cents. And so that's really at the heart of, of our focus is the premise that 
we're already investing more than enough money to not only have a world-class healthcare system, but fund what drives 80% of health outcomes, which are things like well-paying jobs, education, clean air, clean water. But unfortunately, we're getting neither because of essentially what amounts to a $1 trillion tax by Wall Street uh, that is that really, you know, all that profiteering and price gouging that I mentioned, it's there because of perverse incentives. And so their money handlers are enabling that, uh, but that's really at the heart of it. So you have to do a reset and, you know, we'll probably talk about the unique opportunity for that reset that we have now, given we have this problem having existed for a while, but then COVID I'd describe as a super spreader event on a set of societal pre-existing conditions that are really uh, putting many of us in harm's way. Um, so that's that's sort of where I would start on that that uh, topic. You know, what I really appreciate about your insight and your expertise and quite honestly, the transparency and uh, the integrity and the truthfulness about what you bring and what Health Rosetta brings here is you're reframing it and saying, listen, things aren't working for the vast majority of the American public and the American working public. And one of the major reasons for this is the cost of healthcare. It's not apparent, it's not obvious. Once you start to brush aside some of the opacity, you start to see this. And I, and I think it's just such a critical point that you're, you're bringing and such a critical narrative. You talk about, uh, and again, I'm gonna quote you, you stated that healthcare is blocking the American dream for 60% of the workforce, which is such a profound statement and such an important statement to look at. So can you share a little bit about how the rising costs of healthcare have impacted wages, uh, take-home pay, and perhaps our, even our retirement funding? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few interesting statistics here. One of them is, it's kind of a, they relate to each other, and that is 60% of the workforce makes $20 an hour or less. You can go fact check me with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So that would, you know, if somebody's working full time, that would mean they're getting about $40,000. The average family of four premiums in the United States are over $20,000. And then because of how healthcare is really, uh, you know, this financial toxicity that's really a comorbidity in our system. And so you have a dynamic where essentially half of households to be conservative have less than $1,000 in savings. The average deductible is a few thousand dollars. And so most Americans in this working and middle class are what I call functionally uninsured. When your life savings is less than your deductible and out of pocket, you are functionally uninsured. And the related point is that one thing that we are the absolute undisputed world leaders in our healthcare system is medical bill driven bankruptcy. Nobody comes close to us. And 70% of those people had so-called insurance. I don't know how you can call it insurance if you're going to end up in bankruptcy. And so that's, you know, that gets to some of the, the data points in terms of um, kind of the retirement nest egg part of this. If you look at the youngest of the boomer generation, they're sort of mid fifties now, been working 30 plus years. If healthcare 
inflation had grown at the regular rate of inflation versus what happened. And you sort of project out that trend, those two trend lines, medical inflation, regular inflation, and what that's done. And you look at that spread. And if that was invested in an S&P index fund, the average boomer would have over a million dollar nest egg. They clearly don't. Um, and that's because of healthcare overwhelmingly. I mean, it's probably 95% at least of that dynamic. Some would argue even more. Um, and that has created, you know, real pain. Um, and again, you go back to when you have uh, a economic depression of that length, you have some really strange things that, that will happen. And we've, I think, seen that over the last few weeks, last few years, uh, what that's about across the board. Yeah, I mean, there's very few things that hurt as much as not having money in your pocket for your family, for your children, for your future. Um, on your website, and I think in your books, or one of your books at least, you have a, a wonderful graph about how the, the cost of healthcare for families in terms of their overall spending has really just overwhelmed every other cost. In fact, all the other costs a family has. I don't have those stats right in front of me, but it looked like, uh, like healthcare spending was literally creeping up on 50% of all household spending. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the one that comes to mind, and this was in the um, Wall Street Journal, I think it was August of 2016. And so this, there's variations on this, but this was data from 2007 to 2014. And they looked at the middle-class family budget during that period of time. Healthcare costs had grown 24.8% during that time. And be, again, because of healthcare, take-home pay didn't um, go up. So it's a zero-sum game. So here's the things it took away from. It wasn't taking away from you know, vacations to Tahiti. Food at home down 3.6%. Housing down 6%. Transportation down 6.5%. Total food 7.5%. Food away from home down 13.4%. Clothing down 18.8%. Um, that's really core stuff. You can imagine how angry you would be. And unfortunately, a lot of times blame is miscast on, you know, something like, you know, globalization or immigration or whatever. Like, I'm not saying that that has a zero impact, but overwhelmingly, probably 95, 98%. It's just healthcare. The data is really clear on that. You're making such a strong case for something that is so fundamental to our uh, financial well-being uh, as to look at this whole system of employer-based healthcare. You know, I just want to ask you, if you put yourself in front of an auditorium and in that auditorium, it's a huge stadium and you've got all the senior leadership teams uh, from corporate America and their HR benefits managers and their HR leaders. So you've got this audience, which is potentially one of your target audiences. What are, if you had a few minutes up there, what would be a, just you know, one or two points that you would say to them to help them understand the employer-based healthcare situation from a, uh, you know, corporate uh, employer-based leadership perspective? Yeah, I mean, I would, I mean, in general, what changes people is setting higher expectations. I'd argue there's a tyranny of low expectations around what we can expect out of a healthcare system. And so for the most part, 
I would focus in on the advantages they have of if they have a high performance workforce and every CEO says employees are our most valuable asset. If you believe that, which I think most do, um, and you're sincere about that, you're not stewarding that asset well when you are causing uh, economic depression and and you know the other thing to kind of hit them hard is because I do talk to quite a few CEOs and and they don't like to hear this because to a person everyone has been affected uh, somewhere by this which is what I wrote a book that looked at the healthcare system through the prism of the opioid crisis and 11 of the 12 drivers of the opioid crisis, which is often oversimplified, by the way, the key unwitting enabler are employers. You, know, you think about who's impacted, working age people and their dependents. Where do those people get their health benefits? Uh, they get them through their job. And probably in this stadium, I don't know if I'd get into this level of detail, but just for this, you know, you've got an astute audience. You can take a simple example that most people can understand, including the CEO, lower back pain, second most common reason people go to the doctor. That's a microcosm of the dysfunction. We completely botch it. It's the number, you know, as I said, the number two reason people go to the doctor, number one driver of disability, number one driver of opioid prescriptions, despite the fact there's zero evidence that opioids are effective for lower back pain other than masking short-term pain you know, while the underlying issue still goes on. And then further, some people uh, will get inappropriate uh, back surgeries. 90% of the spinal procedures that were studied by Virginia Mason and Starbucks would have been better treated with physical therapy. And so that's, unfortunately, we pay for things that have high margin like drugs and surgeries and don't pay for things or make it difficult to access. Um, and then the other piece where, uh, unfortunately, much of the large companies, I wouldn't say this as much for the smaller companies, the mid-market companies, which is actually a whole other discussion of uh, if you want to change healthcare through the employer arena, which would you go after? But we'll, we'll assume this is large companies. The one of the leaders of the risk management practice for one of the big four consulting firms said that ERISA fiduciary risk is the number one highest risk that has been not disclosed. And that uh, ERISA is a regulatory environment that employer health plans um, sit under as well as retirement benefit plans in general. The, the whole idea with fiduciary duty is you're responsible for stewarding somebody else's money and you need to be very careful. The corporate America has been derelict in their financial, you know, their ERISA fiduciary duty. That puts a giant legal target on their back. And there are class action lawsuits in the works on that issue. And unfortunately for some of those mega corporations, that's the only thing that will get them to act because they got a lot on their plate in fairness. And so those would be the things that I would focus in on the positive, the opportunity. You know, I mean, we had, you know, one employer that we've talked about, um, you know, it's in my book called Pacific Steel. They're a mid-market manufacturer. And I was talking to their CFO about, gosh, you know, you took your 
health benefits spending from over $8 million to under $3.5 million while benefits improved, cost sharing removed for the members. Nest eggs, you know, sort of re restocked, if you will. I'm guessing it's a private company, so I didn't have the data. You would have had to sit talking to the CFO, you would have had to increase top line sales revenue 20% to have the same profit impact. And uh, is that, that about right? And he's like, no, actually, it'd be more like 25 to 30% to have that kind of impact. And so it is this, it's the last area to modernize inside of companies. And, you know, basically companies are putting, you know, sort of the Oldsmobile health plan in for now a workforce that already today, millennials are the biggest chunk of the workforce today. By 2025, millennials and post millennials are expected to be 75% of the workforce. Does anybody think that that sort of Oldsmobile, old line damaging plan that's given us financial mayhem and the opioid crisis is optimized for millennials and post millennials or frankly, any of us? Like nobody would say that. It's the polar opposite. It's inconvenient. It's opaque. It's just basically a nightmare. And so the companies that are gonna have the edge are the ones who say, okay, we need to optimize for the biggest chunk of our workforce. And guess what? The millennials are now 40 years old. They're starting to really pay attention. You know, Most of us, unless we're unfortunate to have childhood disease, don't pay attention to the healthcare system until maybe we have kids or maybe have you know, some of our own health issues that come you know, as people get into their late 30s and 40s. And so the company wants to get ahead will develop plans that don't just have like cutesy top off benefits like, oh, we're gonna give them massages. Like I'm all for massages, don't get me wrong. But like you fundamentally need a reset. You know, I mean, they're at best phones that are plugged into the wall, landline phones in an era of, you know, smartphones. I mean, they're not even flip phones, you know, they're mobile devices, they're just a disaster. And so let's do that reset. I think COVID is the catalyst for that reset. Uh, so that's where I would focus my energy. Why did you say that COVID is acting as a catalyst here? In what ways do you see that? Well, if you look at the big picture, who's who's suffering the most? It's the working and middle class, right? They don't have health resilience, financial resilience. You know, they're the ones who've had the highest rates of death um, in this. And the the people who are feeling real pain, like if they've lost their job or lost significant sources of their income because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, they have no savings because healthcare basically stole it. Not the actual healthcare part, but the profiteering, you know, price gouging part of it. Um, and so that's what I say in terms of it really exposes that. And then you couple it with, you know, in the midst of record success that big health systems have had and the fact that they couldn't provide proper protective gear and they blamed other people, even though they're incredibly profitable. And then the other thing that's probably the biggest thing I would highlight is at the time when we most need like primary care, that's really the front lines of any, you know, between that and public health is really the front lines of any kind of pandemic sort of situation. They're having to close their doors because of these, the whacked reimbursement 
system that we have. Meanwhile, the mega carriers, the publicly traded companies, have had unreal record earnings after 10 years. I mean, if you look at since the Affordable Care Act passed, the big carriers have had stock market returns that are like Amazon. And on top of that, they have their biggest earnings. Like how whacked is that? And so that's what I think is has shined a light. In fact, that was just one of the last things that um, the Trump administration and the you know Congress signed off on was ending the antitrust exemption for health insurers. And it was unanimously voted um, in the fall to remove that antitrust exemption. I think part of that is there's just no defense for that situation. And they were, um, they just kind of, you know, if you're, you know, a Lord of the Rings <laughs> fan, you know, there's that scene where the the hero has kind of lost his way as in sitting on a pile of gold and kind of, you know, just off. I mean, we kind of have that situation right now. Yeah, and I think, I think the root cause there is, you know, what you point out is the fee-for-service payment model, which is, I think, I think it's decimated, if not destroyed, primary care in our country and uh, preventive care. It's hard to, as we're seeing for years, if not decades, it's hard to get off of it, but we have to. So, so I want to go back to what you said a couple of minutes ago, you know, you fundamentally need a reset. So, you know, you and Health Rosetta have been studying positive examples of this reset of a new way uh, of doing employer-based healthcare and healthcare delivery. Uh, and I know on your website and in your writings, you have five or seven, uh, depending on how you look at it, so, sort of big ticket items, you know, and I, I'm lifting this in part from what I've read from your writings, but, you know, learning how to liberate the status quo, optimizing the plan infrastructure in terms of advisor relationships, uh, uh, you know, a plan and an administrative health plan optimization, carving out uh, pharmacy benefits managers, going to value-based primary care, such as in direct primary care, uh, those sorts of things. I'd love to dive in there with you. Maybe, uh, quite honestly, I'm so interested in in some of the specifics. And I'd like to start, if it's okay with you, I mean, you could start wherever you want, but I'd like to start with this notion, you know, on your website, uh, Tom Emmerich, who's, I, I believe, is uh, works with Health Rosetta and, and has was the benefits manager for Burger King Corporation uh, for uh, a large British Petroleum, right? Uh, that large company for Walmart. And he points out how a very small percentage, you know, something around six to eight percent of employees contribute to to nearly eighty percent of the healthcare spend. And there's tremendous misdiagnosis and mistreatment, which not only leads to pain and suffering, uh, loss of employment, but uh, also just tremendously outlandish costs of care that are inappropriate and uh, and and not effective. And so. You know, I'm just wondering, let's start with that one in terms of what can we learn from that and what can uh, an employer do uh, around uh, those large costs? Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible to price gouge a surprise bill on a surgery that never happened. And so what Tom's insight has is, you know, you want to get people to the highest value, unconflicted um, experts you know, and, you know, the Mayo Clinic is sort of the canonical example, but there's others where they will find that rates of of misdiagnosis range from 20% in cancer to 67% in musculoskeletal. And, you know, things like organ transplants 
40% of the planned organ transplants when they went for a second opinion to places like the Mayo Clinic uh, were deemed medically unnecessary. Um, so that's the type of thing where there's extraordinary cost, potentially real risk to the person and a lifelong impact like in that example that could exist. And so that's a really important area that, and those people tend to be different people year to year. So you got to get people to the right place. And you may actually spend more on a unit cost basis for a given surgery. That's okay if they're not doing inappropriate surgery. And so that's what they spent a lot of time uh, really investigating the, the processes that they had. I mentioned Virginia Mason. They're another good example of this where to their credit and to the harm of their bottom line, they changed the way they approached spinal care you know, guess what? PT doesn't pay nearly as much as, as a lumbar fusion, um, but they did the right thing. And that's what I think there are good people inside of our system. You mentioned the fee-for-service mayhem. That is a big part of our problem, you know, that, uh, you know, hospitals are really the fire department of our health. In my view, you know, the hospitals should be um, compensated, you know, like fire departments are locally accountable budgets and a fixed budget. And then they're there for those moments. And they're not having these weird things like we've had in COVID where there's all this time spent bellying out hospitals because of elective surgeries going away. Well, if they have a, a regular budget, they can just go be a great hospital. And when and in the, mo the moments our system's at its best, like the Boston Marathon bombing, magical things can happen and they're not having to worry about um, in that situation so dramatic in the heat of the moment uh, how they're going to get paid but instead at the time when you want their attention most on caring for people they're worrying about oh are we going to allow people in for elective surgeries and all that and so that's where you know another dimension of the payment reform I would advocate for is is on that front you know, kind of the more of a global budget, particularly in rural settings, you know, where they're really challenged. And, you know, in my book, I talk about the NUCA model uh, in South Central Alaska, which is just a remarkable story. You want to talk rural challenges. Oh my gosh. Like they've got 65,000 people across an area as big as the country of Sweden. And guess what? And some of the, the, these people have the audacity to live in villages <laughs> that um, you can't get to by plane or other means when there's bad weather, but they still have health issues. So they deal with reality. And there's amazing things that can be done when rather than making excuses, they're like, okay, how are we going to solve this problem? Well, we got telehealth for this and, and they have medication vending machines, not that you can go up and, you know, put in a dollar and get oxy coming out, but uh, they can have, they're bulletproof and, a, you know, a medical assistant can be there and put the label on. It's all very controlled. And they, they solve those problems because they're not having to worry about this goofy fee-for-service revenue there. Um, so those are the types of things that, that we really have to do. And, you know, you mentioned the Johnny Appleseed, you know, name that uh, I gave, because I just, kind of the the maybe the prequel to the Johnny Appleseed story is, you know, Lewis and Clark Voyage of Discovery, which is basically I just went around the last decade 
and saying, you know, we're problem solvers. There's problem solvers the world over, but certainly in the U.S., we're problem solvers. People have solved these problems. Maybe they're the outliers. Um, and that's what I found. Every problem that we have, there is a great solution that is sustainable. The, the real puzzle is how do you replicate that and have that turn into the mainstream? And, you know, that's a lot of where our focus is. And so that's the inspiring part of this, where you have the NUCA model that literally had health outcomes worse than most developing countries, worse than the U.S., bottom 5% 20 years ago. Now, generally considered the best healthcare system in the world. You've got people from Singapore to Sweden visiting there because they relocalized health. Um, and they put people, you know, the they don't call patients patients, they call them customer owners. I mean, they did a complete reset and it's incredibly impactful what they've done for their community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm, so that's the NUCA, N-U-C-A. N-U-K. N-U-K, okay, thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Alaska native term for like a great big positive object, like a whale or something like that. The, the actual organization that runs that because they call it the Nukem system, Nuka system of, of care is the South Central Foundation. So Alaska, um, you know, the Alaska native communities is kind of broken into different parts of the, the state. And so they cover a big chunk of the state. So yeah, it's just, it's really impressive what they've done. Yeah, I definitely have to look into that and, and something for our listeners as well to check out. Now, you're also a big proponent uh, as one of your five or seven big levers here uh, to reset employer-based healthcare. Uh, you talk about direct primary care. So can you briefly de describe what DPC is and, and why, why you believe it's so important? Yeah. I mean, the backdrop is there is no well-functioning healthcare system in the world not built on proper primary care. You know, Nuke I just mentioned is a great example of that. Um, in a proper primary care setting, that exists in a place like Nuka or Rosen Hotels in Florida and, and many others, 90% uh, of the issues people come into the healthcare system for can be fully addressed in a proper primary care setting. That's not what the average American, especially, you know, the American that's maybe in their mid forties actually haven't even experienced proper primary care. So they don't even know what it is. And so you start with that. That's not some well-kept secret. And so then how do you do that? There's, you know, as you mentioned earlier in that kind of five-step blueprint, um, adding value-based primary care is one of those. Direct primary care is one flavor of that. As you mentioned earlier, it's silly to pay that on a fee-for-service basis. And actually the bright spots during COVID are the value-based primary care, advanced primary care, I and mean, there's different terms that people use the Rosens, the Nukas, the Oak Street Health, the Iora Health, they didn't skip a beat, you know, because they didn't have to worry about losing this fee-for-service revenue. They were already paid on a prospective basis monthly. And so they could just focus in on being what they are, great caregivers. Um, and so that's what that's all about. And, and when I say proper primary care, fully actualized primary care, not only includes the doctors, but it's, you know, often includes social workers, behavioral health, physical therapy, sometimes dietitian, often uh, pharmacists, all there, very convenient, very easy to access, incredibly affordable. Yeah, that's so great. Do you have 
uh, I mean, you've mentioned a number of names like the yours and Gen Med's another one that comes to mind where again, they're getting sort of a, a member per month payment. So regardless of whether people show up, they're still getting a revenue stream, which allows them to actually add all of these extra services that you're talking about. Um, and their goal is not to just have you come in the office. Uh, at least they're not financially driven by that or have that as a uh, financial motive. Their motive is to keep you well and away from EDs, away from hospitals, away from high cost procedures, which you know means they have to keep you healthy and do what they have to. And so better benefits and, and better care uh, lead to, in primary care, lead to lower costs. You know, are there other examples of that? I mean, are there companies that are using direct primary care really effectively? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're all over the place, and and it's it's not just uh, private sector, public sector as well. Um, so, one of the we had a webinar recently with Bennett School District. This is a rural school district uh, about an hour away from the heart of Denver, and they dropped their healthcare spending in half with the combination of some of the things in that plan. The, direct primary care, the um, direct contracting, you know, removing value extracting middlemen on the contracting and uh, a smart uh, drug plan that got rid of the shenanigans with that are is so common with the PBMs. And so they were, I think the only school district that's been able to give teachers raises over the last couple of years because they weren't squandering money in healthcare. So, you know, they're an example, you know, we, we talked about Rosen. I mean, the only thing that really makes Rosen unique is they just done it longer than anybody else. They cumulatively saved $425 million over the 25 years they've been doing this. And so that's allowed them to not only have incredible health benefits, I mean, great health benefits package, but also benefits. They pay for their kids their employees and the employees' kids' college education um, with the what we call the health Rosetta dividend. When you get rid of that squandering of the money, you can reinvest it and actually what drives true health and well-being. You know, I'm just doing a update of my book and we just added some more case studies um, into that and we have a bunch on the site. So we haven't seen a setting, rural, urban, small company, large company, public sector, private sector, where these approaches don't work. There's really no excuse. Sure, there's some areas where you might do one tactic before another, but it's it's very, you know, it's not some ivory tower concept. Um, I didn't have to scramble up to the top of Mount Rainier and cross my legs and dream this stuff up. I just went on that voyage of discovery and like Lewis and Clark and like, oh, wow, what's this all about? And then be like, you know, yeah, we're, we're proud of what we're doing, but you got to go talk to these guys, you know, and I just kind of bopped around the country, literally and, and virtually to find these. And that's where I found what the common threads were, uh, which was this, this five-step process that you see on the back of my, you know, recent book and the making healthcare local on the back. You know, you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the issue of pharmacy spend for employers. And we know that's uh, increased dramatically. Uh, dramatically over the past few years, most people don't recognize that it's been the fastest growing cost in healthcare and now making up somewhere between 20 to 25% of all, uh, you know, employee based healthcare spending on your website, you 
talk about transparent pharmacy benefits as a critical component in reducing costs. So could you say a little bit about how that works? Because this is such a tough problem. Yeah. And, and I'll preface it with there's some folks who say they're transparent, but they can also be transparently expensive. So it's transparency is one of those terms that sometimes gets abused. So we just look at the, the actual bottom line impact. And actually, it's interesting because there's, there's three dominant mega PBMs that probably generate 80% of the revenue. One of those three, if you actually procure in the right way, and you take the attitude I mentioned earlier, employees are our most valuable asset. It is a privilege, therefore, for the healthcare system for you to serve our valuable asset. Like any other thing, we are going to procure in this way. If you want to participate, here's how you do that. And you can actually get a good price even out of one of those big three. But most of the, the best are the, the you know, somewhat smaller ones where what we have found is that PBMs have generated for themselves about 30 different revenue streams. Most employers would think maybe they're getting one or two. And so you just have to root out that stuff. And there's certain questions you can ask. There's certain ways you can contract that extract that value extraction from the equation. And so like Pacific Steel, I mentioned earlier, probably about, you know, when they went from 8 million to under three and a half million, probably about a quarter of that savings was in the the pharmacy area, Caterpillar, you know, large company, really the only thing that they've really focused in on and done a remarkable job is pharmacy procurement. They haven't seen overall healthcare costs go up in a decade just because they've done such a good job in pharmacy. Uh, State of New Jersey in the first three years since getting smart on their procurement, they've collectively saved 1.6 billion with a B um, in that area. And that's you know, you want to do air quotes. Good news is the shenanigans are so extreme there that it's easy to find savings. And often that, that's why in this five-step plan we have, the first thing that kind of gets into the care delivery side is the carving out the, the pharmacy benefit manager, because you don't have to change the formulary. You don't have to change where people get their medication. You just got to get rid of the, the profiteering and and then that can actually free up money that like, okay, well, let's go invest in primary care. Because uh, some, you know, there is some upfront investment to get that long-term uh, payoff. And the thing about that is you can do these things that are either completely invisible. Maybe the only thing that's visible at the pharmacy thing is the members no longer paying. I mean, we had that with a, a convenience store owner that had a worker who was making $12 an hour she had some condition that had an expensive medication that I think it was costing her $300 um, out of pocket each month. As a consequence, since she'd gotten married and had children, they had never taken a vacation. It's the first time in their experience, because we got rid of that, she had no cost sharing at all, they were able to take a vacation. I mean, that's the kind of human impact that we're talking about. I mean, I'm fine with companies, you know, being more profitable, but in employers, but really most employers just say, you know, they've got a pool of money for compensation, you know, retirement benefits, health benefits, you know, and their salary or, you know, payroll, it's all kind of one big bucket. And so if almost without exception, 
when they get the savings, they, they want to turn it back to the employee. You know, that's kind of what they thought they were doing all along. But unfortunately, they put trust in an organization that hasn't um, earned that trust. You know, when you're, when you're a system that profits the worst job you do, that is premiums go up, you have a problem. And that's directly or indirectly what's been happening. You know, and you were saying before, I mean, there's one bucket that companies have to pay for salaries and healthcare costs and retirement costs. And so conversely, as healthcare costs go up unabated, uh, that means that retirement funding and salaries uh, either don't go up or, or go down. So I think, you know, the human cost here in our country as a result of this hugely dysfunctional employer-based healthcare system, which is largely built on the fee-for-service payment model, I think I think there's just such a call to do this, uh, to change this. And, uh, you know, do you think the change is going to come? I mean, can the federal government step in and make some change? Or, or where do you see the change coming from? I see it like every other large social movement. Eventually, the politicians, you know, will run to the front of the parade. But great social movements always start grassroots. And so that is what we see in that. And the real action is in the mid-market, the 50 to 5,000 employee type of organization. They're, they're big enough to be able to be self-insured and care about it. They're often much more connected to their staff and really care about it. That's where most of the examples of true transformation are happening. And if you look at that segment of our country, that's 90 million people. That's not a trivial beachhead. Um, and so that, that's a nice area. It's very complex for the mega corporations to do these things. There's some reasons why the Havens and others have failed so miserably. Uh, it's just really difficult uh, for them for a number of reasons. And frankly, it's really well-defended turf. Uh, whereas the you know, 100-person manufacturer in rural Tennessee, like that's typically not where you're going to get the fly-in from the CEO of some mega carrier trying to defend, you know, a large, you know, client, you know, or other things they might do to protect that. Um, and so that's why a lot of this is off the radar for people is they're just making it happen and necessity being the mother of, of invention, they just can't afford not to do it. And they've seen that the so-called solution of pushing more on the back of their workforce just hasn't gotten the job done. It just, made their workforce incredibly stressed and inflict a lot of pain on them. And so that's where we see the, the solution coming. And we've had both parties in full control, you know, and, and we're fiercely nonpartisan in what we're doing. And the, the reality is to be snarky for a minute, I would say in DC, there's 10% of the politicians who are true conservatives and about 10% are true, um, progressives. Most of them are preservatives. They're just there paid to preserve the status quo. And so the cavalry is not coming from DC to fix it. If it does, great. There's certainly some things that they can do and I'm all for it. And we help out when we can. There was some recent legislation that was in the stimulus that was around broker compensation. We're happy for that. Um, but there's no reason to wait around for DC. You know, Nuka model didn't wait for DC. Rosen Hotels didn't wait for DC. Pacific Steel didn't wait for DC. These are things that are ready for people today. 
Dave, I just want to say you've always been a straight talker and uh, you speak your mind and I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I just want to say for those listeners, if you have any interest in this, I would urge you to look Dave Chase, uh, C-H-A-S-E on uh, Amazon.com for his books, but also really urge you to go to the Health Rosetta uh, website. Uh, there's just a, a, a ton of great information there and links uh, if you're interested in any of this. And of course, you can connect to Dave and his colleagues at Health Rosetta. I've, I've just, you know, I'm so uh, supportive of what you're doing. As you say, it's a, it's a, uh, a really a movement of the people. Uh, it's uh, nonpartisan. Uh, it's, uh, it's the right thing. And um, I think we need more of what you and your colleagues at, and, and collaborators at Health Rosetta are proposing and supporting and helping employers with. Uh, Dave, again, such a pleasure. You know, as I do every episode, Dave, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of our listeners out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or supporting those who are taking care of patients. I and we truly, truly appreciate you for what you do, especially at this point in time. Uh, during the COVID pandemic. We recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. Um, And, you know, one of the things I will say, I appreciate so much, Dave, about your message is it is clearly about employees. It's about individuals and their families. But uh, you, you make such a big point that this is also about doctors and nurses and, you know, techs and other people in healthcare. This is really about relieving them of a system that is not truly supportive of them and doesn't free them up to do the work that they uh, they're so passionate about and so skilled at and so i appreciate that uh, about your message and your efforts as well uh, so folks this is zeb new on creating a new health uh, until next time be safe and be well